welcome to Season 7 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that's dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from around the globe who believe the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode is brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I am joined by the one and only Jeru Bilamoria, who is a school awardee, an Ashoka Fellow, and a Schwab Fellow. She is the founder of several innovative and award-winning NGOs and has over 20 years experience running systems change organizations. I want to share just a few examples. Giroux founded Child and Youth Finance International, which has created financial inclusion and economic citizenship education for young people in over 160 countries. She also founded Aflatoon International, which provides social and financial education to over a million children in 100 countries. She also founded Childline India and Child Helpline International, which have facilitated a global movement for protection of youth and children They've responded to more than 160 million calls in more than 181 countries. Most recently, Drew is the founder of One Family Foundation, which incubates social innovations and applies the systems change methodology to help organizations scale. In 2019, One Family Foundation began collaborating with other leading social entrepreneurs from Ashoka, Echoing Green, Schwab Foundation, School Foundation, and other global networks of change makers. And the group is inclusive and rapidly expanding to include governments, funders, bilateral organizations, multilateral organizations, and others seeking the timely achievement of the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. So Catalyst 2030 was launched at the World Economic Forum in January of last year. It aims to accelerate progress towards the SDGs by radically transforming social innovation ecosystems and driving systems change interventions at the country level. Uh, I mean, with that bio, I said to Giroux before we got started on the call, how do you have time to do a podcast? But welcome, Giroux. It's so great to have you on the show. Thank you very much, Anita. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Oh, you know, and, and you are so reminding me of the conversation we had prior, like a couple of years back, um, when I was reaching out to social entrepreneurs to try to understand the connection that they felt they saw between empathy and social change. And it's so delightful to see the work that you continue to do. I actually attended a number of sessions from Catalyst 2030. It was an amazing event. So congratulations. So let's start here because I've just spoken too much. You're a serial entrepreneur, social entrepreneur, and the founder of these, you know, amazing NGOs. What propelled you initially down the path of social entrepreneurship? Nothing. My mother was a professional social worker and had started things. And my father always uh, believed that uh, you, if you have enough, you should share. And so I think I would say I was brainwashed into it. I can't claim any credit. <laughs> really, but I do know, having interviewed you once before, that your mom used to take you on site visits. Oh. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, as a social worker, she always used to, uh, I always used to say I grew up partially in the slums of India because as she was doing her work. And as she was, she always took me along. And I think that was phenomenal. And I guess more parents should be taking their children along to work because I understood what it meant, what was involved. And I think at 12, I was already 
I had already conducted several camps for children who needed stuff. By 16, was leading my own things. So I think she sort of, as I said, she groomed me into what she thought I should be doing. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I did interviews with social entrepreneurs for my, for my PhD research, um, that's how I discovered empathy in the first place, because I was trying to understand why do these social entrepreneurs do the work they do? They're all talented. They all have amazing tenacity and all the kind of qualities that a traditional entrepreneur has, but they're, you know, using it and leveraging all the talent and um, energy towards solving social problems. And when I did these interviews, I uncovered that they were all animated by this need to act on empathy for others. So your initial work was um, to help young children, right? And so could you tell us a little bit about sort of what motivated you, what kept you motivated um, in the work that you were doing then, back then? I think what motivated me then is what motivates me now too, and maybe I can articulate it a bit better now, is, uh, uh, it sounds terrible, but uh, as I was telling you earlier, many of us are very blessed with all the things, and it's a sense of what I call duty, but not duties, and you have to go to you know, go and do this type of duty, but the sense of you have to give back a sense of there's so much wrong with the world that you just have to go and try to do your bit and your bit recognizing also that your bit, or I'll speak for myself, whatever I'm trying to change is just a drop in the ocean. And the ocean is really, really, really big. But if you don't try and you just sit on the bylines and say, hmm, I'm going to criticize this. I'm going to do that. It really doesn't work. So I think it's uh, being there proactively, trying to work on the change that one wishes to see. And I think that's the change. And always putting oneself in the other person's shoes, trying to understand, trying to do your best, knowing that you're probably failing, but still trying, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I've developed a model over the last year um, that describes the work of purposeful empathy. And it's it's kind of like the ikigai, four circles that interconnect. Um, and, and there's an outer rim that I've added. And in that outer rim, I've got this, the what I believe is true about purposeful empathy, that it's political by nature from the point of view of we must not accept the status quo. We must agitate for greater peace, sustainability, equality, equity, um, justice. And then also, even though it's political by nature, it's also spiritual by nature. And I think what I'm sensing from this, what you're describing as a sense of duty and, and paying it forward if you've been given a good life to, to, to do work to help others, that's what I mean by the spiritual nature, that it calls us to be like the better versions of our nature Um, Do you find that the work that you've done over the years has um, been a blessing to you and has kind of elevated your consciousness in any way? Sure. I always believe that uh, uh, whatever I may have given, maybe in a small handful in terms of my work, I have got back 5,000 times more. Don't you wish more people knew that? I think everyone knows that people just have the courage to act on it. Mm. 
So what would you say to a group of young people who are on the fence? You know, these are my students in my class. I teach leadership. I teach social entrepreneurship. This fall, I hopefully be teaching a new course in ethics and in management. And, you know, these are all kids that, you know, want to go out in the world and uh, potentially be new influencers on Instagram or YouTube or TikTok. I want to work in digital marketing yeah. or finance or, you know, or, or accountants or, or whatever. Um, and I, I always find it fascinating when they realize that they actually could devote their careers to solving some of the, or at least trying to solve some of these, you know, global intractable, intractable problems. And it's like right. something lights up for them because it, it, it aligns with their values, but they feel kind of disconnected from their values because of the career choices that either society is saying is the right thing to do or their parents are saying is the right thing to do. So what would you say to these young people to nudge them over the edge? Like, you know, do it, have the courage. I would say, follow your heart. I would say really follow your heart and do what makes you feel comfortable. That would be uh, my advice. And your heart will lead you, your intuition. By heart, I mean your intuition, where it is. Because um, uh, my mom was a professional social worker. My father was an accountant. Okay, I could have been an accountant because I studied my, my undergrad was in commerce. I could have been a social worker, but I chose, and that's because I followed my heart. I don't. I think if I had been an accountant, I'd probably have been halfway decent or as good. I still love accounts and can tally things in my brain. So it's not that I don't love that, but I chose to follow what I thought would give me passion. And I think that's what I tell. And I'm currently speaking to my nephews who are going through the same dilemma, which is like, should we take these high-flying careers? What should we do? I say the same thing. Just follow your passion. Follow what you're good at. Follow what gives you energy. If you do that, you'll be happy. And that's most important. So I agree. It, it, that, that's what makes you happy. I also feel that somehow, I don't know if this is the right way to frame it, but kind of the universe knows when you're on track and you're in alignment with what you're meant to be doing, what you were put on the earth to do. Do you feel because you're pursuing your path and what is in your heart to do that somehow some serendipitous doors have oh, opened. Can you definitely. share a few examples? I don't think catalyst would have happened if it weren't for serendipity. So I think you have strategy and then you have serendipity and both go hand in hand. I think you have to have be very, very clear in your strategy, your goals and where you want to go because otherwise 50 doors will open and you won't know which door to take. Um, so that's one thing. Or So you need both, you know. So uh, uh, this is an analogy I've used a lot and I think um, it's very important. Uh, a river starts in the mountains and veers through a lot of things till it reaches the sea, correct? It goes through fields, it goes through mountains, it veers this way, they have tributaries, all of it. Ultimately, the change we want to see is hopefully a change for the better for humankind, the planet, whatever. And then you just have to follow. So if that's what you have as an organization, as an individual, let it flow. And the flow will happen. And as it's flowing, 
different roads will open, different paths will open, different ways will open, and you'll reach your destination. Sometimes straight, sometimes this way, sometimes through a waterfall, a steep dive, a steep rise, you know. So is there a practice that you use to make the decision? You just described how sometimes 50 doors will open. So you have strategy, but then serendipity. How do you find your inner guidance system? Like, is there a practice that you have to make decisions? Uh, no, real, no, I just follow what I think is the right strategic choice. But the one practice I do have is to listen to everybody I'm working with. Mm. And to me, that's the most important because um, one never knows best. I've, you know, so I listen to people, and then, then together we come towards the right solution. Beautiful humility and social change work. I love it. Okay, so you are a pioneer of what's known as collaborative systems change. We're hearing a lot, a lot, a lot about systems change. What does that mean, and what role does empathy play in systems change? I add collaboration to systems change because one person can bring systems change, definitely. But if you collaborate, you bring it about faster. You co-create it. It's something which is not my vision, which I need to accomplish, but our vision, which we come together and we do it together. So I think this is something which uh, we look at much more and more. And uh, to me, Actually, I am more and more leaning towards not using the word systems change, but what I call systems evolution. Mm. And so I'm writing up about that. And uh, I think that is the theory which we need to look at. Because in a sense, though they say change is not constant, if you want to be truly empathetic, if you want to see true change, you have to recognize the evolutionary nature which is constantly there in change and sort of build on that. So I think true systems change will come when empathy is interwoven into it, when spirituality is interwoven into it, whatever that be. And if it's not there, that's also fine. But collaboration. So for me, empathy is very strongly linked to systems change and systems evolution. So what? So I, I, I know that we speak the same language of, uh, and, and understand what systems change is about. But for those who don't understand it, could you describe some big systems that you think are uh, impeding peace, justice, sustainability? And, you know, the idea of systems evolution is to sort of move from one system that may not be optimal to something that is more just, more sustainable. Um, but I think there are lots of systems which need changing because status quo is the one thing we cannot have. But I'm going to talk about what Catalyst is trying to do in terms of changing what we call the meta system. Because what we've realized is that many of us, and, and that to me is also how empathy grows and becomes collective empathy. And the concept of collective empathy and collective change because of it. So in Catalyst, if we give an example... I was working on child protection, then inclusion. Someone else was working on water, someone on livelihood, someone on regenerative. And all of us were doing a lot individually. But what we realized is that if we came together, 
we got our collective resources together, then we could change the meta ecosystem, which would allow social entrepreneurs to flourish. And this is what we are currently trying to do. Get governments to recognize that social entrepreneurs need a seat at the table. Create units of social where social entrepreneurs can connect in governments. And that way, bring about the change that we need to see and make it happen. Today's episode was brought to you by Grant Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. So what do you say to the critics of social entrepreneurship that it's new language for more of the same? Because there are, I I sense in the discourse, there are people who believe in community action uh, and, and more activism sort of at the grassroots level that's really, you know, trying to upend um, capitalism and, and patriarchy and, and white supremacy and all of that, if, of course, is very important. But there's, there's sen- there, it seems to me that um, people who are active in those spaces have skepticism about social entrepreneurship because they feel that social entrepreneurs are kind of navigating in spaces, halls of power, foundations, government, um, where that's where the problems reside, right? So it's almost like perpetuating the problem. A lot of people might say, oh, the school world forum is become elitist. Schwab is at the world economic forum. It's, you know, a bunch of private jets flying into Switzerland once a year. So what do you say to all of those critiques? Five fingers, you need all of them. You need everything. You need activism. You need social change. Uh, you, so you need every single thing. So I look at the critiques. I don't look at it as critiques. I say, you're right. What you're doing is very, very valuable. But at the same time, you need this to bring about change over here. So therefore, I always say to anyone who critiques, I'm saying, it's not us versus them. It's all of us in it together. And that's also part of the collaboration with systems change. We have to bring all of this together to make the change we want to see happen. Am I making sense? So I don't see it as us versus them, you, we, me. It's not. It's all of us together. And if we work together, we'll see the change. And therefore, I don't even look at it as criticism. I look at it as a dialogue. And a dialogue which will bring about change. So we work with grassroots organizations as actively as we work with, you know. And I see many, many grassroots activists at Davos. So I I really don't see the difference. Civicus, which is the network of activism, is always there at Davos. Oxfam is activists. They are at Davos. So I, I really don't know. You know, okay. yeah. I don't believe in getting caught up in the dialogues. Beautiful, beautiful. That's a very um, helpful stance in the face of social media that makes you think that you have to be an us or a them all the time, right? So you have a team um, of people who are helping you with all of your different uh, efforts and, and you've been working with different teams for you know two decades of social change work and now you're working in collaboration with the private industry and the government industry um, or sector. I, I'm curious to know what practices you have that um, 
that allow you to, to, to listen and collaborate and be in dialogue um, that would be different than other leaders, for example? Like what are some of the practices on a day-to-day -day basis you have with your own team? I think we listen a lot more and we try to co-create a lot more rather than just do things, you know, and be more facilitative. And uh, if you're asking in day-to-day, -day, right? Yeah, I think uh, those would be much more the points which come, you know. And I always say in Catalyst or what we said in CYFI also is there are five principles which I think are important in systems change. One is that you convene, but you convene as an honest broker. That means it's not that my idea is better than yours. All ideas on the table are the same. All actions are the same. Wherever you come from, whoever you are. Then you build the right connections. So always making the connections happen. Hmm? So that is very important. When that happens, you automatically start co-creating. And through that, you have bonding and change and learning. One thing which I do a lot of and I really believe is important is celebrating the successes. And however big, however small, so celebrate. And then the last is calibrate. I always say these are the five. And that's like check whether what you're doing is right or wrong. And on a daily basis, kill your darlings. So something may be my favorite program, but if it's not working. Wow. So, so check your impact. So at a granular level, we've all been working on Zoom over the last year. It hasn't been easy, obviously, doing everything virtual. But um, as we're slowly coming back into the office, does that mean when your your group is listening and collaborating, we, are you in an open We don't have an office. Catalyst has a distributed entity. It grew during COVID. We don't have an office as of now. So we are discussing. We don't know, but we don't have an office. So that's also part of our working culture. And as an organization, Catalyst is not an organization. It is multiple organizations learning multiple programs, trying to create a new organic way of co-creation, which is a distributed entity. So... So that's part of what we are trying to do, which is also different. We don't know whether we are doing it right or wrong, but we're trying it. And I was so impressed because some of the sessions that I was particularly drawn to were the ones on mindfulness and the ones on, you know, being sure as social change makers and social entrepreneurs that you are also um, tending to your own needs and limits, right? So I think in the early stages of social entrepreneurship, it was like, go, 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 go and burn out, right? And now there's an understanding that uh, compassion fatigue and, and trauma is informing a lot of the work that we're doing. It's, it's, it's sometimes motivating, but it also can take you off a cliff where you just feel overwhelmed by the work. So uh, do you sense that there's been a shift where people really understand that it's working at many levels? You know, you're talking about um, systems evolution, collective systems evolution. Sorry, that was just lightning. I don't know if you heard that. Um, I, I don't know if that was a <laughs> meant to be moment. Um, and then also at the very, very deep, profound, personal soul level, that you know, you're working at all those levels in between. Do you sense that people are figuring that out? 
Some are, yeah. It's a process, right? Yeah. And also it's different for different people. For some people, mindfulness and well-being is in one way. For others, it's in another way. Um, you know, so for some, it may just be very personal and spiritual. For others, it may be more conversational, group-oriented. For others, it may be more physical well-being. It really depends. I think it's happening. But also people do recognize how much of the need there is just now. So I think it's a balance. I wonder as a final question, um, thank you so much for, for making the time to have this conversation, Jeru. Do you have a personal example that comes to mind of a time when you were um, on the receiving end of empathy and what that meant for you? I think there are several, several examples that can come to mind. Uh, if I am honest, I'd say I'm on the receiving end of empathy almost every day from the partners who are there in the catalyst movement uh, to, to I think, uh, yeah. So I can't say one particular moment because, again, I personally believe every moment is precious. Mm. And uh, therefore, on every moment when I'm interacting, I'm actually receiving empathy. And that's the empathy I treasure when I take back to sleep mm. in the night. So for me, one moment is the culmination of the multiple moments in the day. Mm. So I, 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 I hope that answers your question. It's not probably the answer you're looking for because you're, I can see, but no. No, no, it's no. The it's the answer, which to me is the most important because empathy is not a one-shot thing. It's, again, a drop in the ocean of your life from multiple people. Yeah, what it arouses for me as a mom, because I know that you're, you're a mother as well, is that I wonder what kind of impact you're having on your children by modeling that in your life. Um, and what a gift they it is. They say mama is crazy. They constantly tell me mama is crazy. How old are they again? <laughs> oh, they are teenagers. So they are the age where they have to say mama is crazy. Wonderful. But what's really interesting is I see them having a very different behavior set with their friends than their friends do. In what way? Having, having different ideological arguments, ideological stands, mm -hmm. you know when they're not doing all the crazy teenage things they're supposed to be doing, mm. you know. And so, are you hopeful about the future? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not sure either of them want to follow my footsteps. So there probably I have failed um, in terms of that. But I actually, that's not true. I'm going to share a personal story. My children are adopted and on the 10 years of adoption, I asked them what would be the gift that you all would like to have. And one family foundation was actually my daughter who will always say, ah, your work, mama. She said, mama, don't you think we should set up a foundation to give back because we were so lucky? So I think that's the subconscious empathy that they have. There you go. You know? There you go. And they'll pass their teenage phase and maybe they will follow in your footsteps. Well, time will tell. <laughs> so sure on that, but I'm sure they will in some way or the other. And as I always say, and I said in the beginning, 
you can bring about social change in whatever way and wherever you are, mm. in whatever career choice you have. Mm. Uh, because five fingers are not the same. You do need the bus driver, the train driver, the the pilot, the chef, everything. And you can bring empathy and social change in every way. Does you do it well, you know, to the best of your ability. Well, I couldn't imagine ending on a more positive note than that, Daru. Thank you so much for the time you took, and I appreciate all our listeners and viewers. And we hope to see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you. Thank you very much, my dear. What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make that important decision, liberate you from whatever is holding you back? At Grant Heron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice anytime from anywhere. Visit GrantHeronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.